Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. It is the 26th of January, and this is Mornings, Paul Perot, without, without Carmen, Carmen the Bridge. Yep. Without Carmen the Bridge. She is enjoying her second day of vacation, and uh, it's nice that she can get a week away. She works awfully hard at this job, bringing does. the news uh, in each day to the show, but bringing Jesus into the midst of that news so we can be think about these things from the critical perspective of God's kingdom and this the one kingdom that will remain forever and ever. So glad that she is uh, able to be away. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling Try in for today. Trying not to break things. I know. She, she does seem to give me, and I think you by default, the admonition that we she wants to come back to a whole and healthy show. Yeah, That, well, that this won't be she's broken. She's got me, she has me in control of your leash. She, she does. I know that's... She does. I, uh, I do text her probably about every three hours or so and just keep saying the cat's away. Just, you know, just, just, <laughs> just trying to bring a little stress into her, her holiday. Uh, no, great to be with all of you listening again this morning. So delightful to start the day this way, talking about things of the news uh, from the perspective of the kingdom. We certainly will do that in hour one. I know that we have some regular guests that'll start the show here with Mark Caleb Smith, a political scientist from Cedarville University. We'll talk a lot about the different dimensions of the impeachment trial that is going to be coming up right around the 8th or 9th of February is when it'll start. But there's a lot of news about that as well. And at the top of hour two, Justin Gibney, another regular, will be joining us and we'll talking about some different things we related to biblical reconciliation. So a lot ahead on this 26th of January. But Paul, I think that idea of thinking about these things that are happening in our news and some of the things that bring us stress, some of the things that bring us a bit of worry, some of the things that maybe we almost just want to turn away from, that we need to be educated about what's happening in our world around us. I do think that what is really unique about the Faith Radio Network and about what we do day in and day out is that we have the freedom, and gratefully so, to be able to talk about these things in light of who we are as God's mm-hmm. resurrection people, as part of the eternal kingdom, that we are shining the light of his future that is to come in the midst of the present. And we can do so from some different lenses. And I, one of the things that really struck me with this impeachment trial that is coming up is how much of this political theater tends to be about power over. Right. It tends to be about who's going to gain power. I'll be asking Mark in just a second, does it seem a little vindictive what's going on? How do we understand all of that? But boy, there's been a lot of power back and forth in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and and there's been always the concern, okay, how much are we as, especially the evangelical world, and that's so abused as a term, because um, what does that mean right, right now? Exactly. Those who really do hold to the evangel of the the gospel or those who just identify politically or whatever in the conservative realm or whatever. But our kingdom, you know, as important as the world is, it's not God's in control. And oftentimes we get so bent out of shape because, okay, our candidate didn't win. We don't need to stress. I mean, God is sovereign. God is in control. We just need to be faithful first and foremost. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And so we'll uh, end this little segment before we bring Mark into the show with some words from Matthew 20, in which uh, even Jesus's closest disciples were sometimes confused about the nature of God's kingdom. And so they came to him and said, so 
when you set up your kingdom, who gets to sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus uh, admonishes them a bit by saying, hey, look, the kingdom of which I rule is not like the kingdoms of this world. He says it's not like uh, the kingdoms in which people lord it over and high officials exercise authority over the people. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you must become servants. And whoever wants to be first must be last, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life Uh, as a ransom for many. That is the perspective of the kingdom in the midst of the headlines of the day. And we'll hold that tension as we start talking about the impeachment trial information next on Mornings Without Carmen. Man, Dr. Mark Smith, where where did you find the affinity for big band music like that? Paul was telling me a little bit off air just that you really like the big horns like that. Oh, I love it. And it's certainly not old enough to experience it firsthand. But uh, ever since I heard it as a relatively young kid. I've enjoyed it. It's probably my favorite form of music. I listen to it more than anything else. I love it. Well, checking out your dossier just a little bit, too. You are the man of the bow tie. And I'm wondering, do you pin this thing on or do you actually tie it? I can't tie any version of any tie. So I'm curious, you get up every morning and tie up this bow tie? There, if it if it isn't a tied bow tie, then I call it a costume. So <laughs> yeah, you have to tie it. You have to go through the pain and the labor of learning to tie it. And it is a bit of an ordeal. But once you master it, then... Uh, you know, there's just no way to be anything other than jaunty and happy when you wear a bow tie. <laughs> I love that. Maybe you can uh, uh, text me a YouTube video, a tutorial about how to do this, and I'll work out the rest of 2021 on that. Well, great to have you on the show here. I know that you are the director of the Center for Political Studies at Cedarville University, and there certainly is a lot in the headlines, politically speaking. And, of course, we'll start with the Trump impeachment. There has been some movement in terms of what we can expect in the next couple of weeks. So give us sort of a broad overview and some of what you're noticing in the headlines. Yeah, the House delivered the article of impeachment last night. And so I think today the senators will be sworn in as sort of jurors, which is how they really function during an impeachment. Uh, But they're delaying this thing until the start of uh, until around February 8th and 9th, mostly so the Senate can conduct other kinds of business. And so President Trump or former President Trump, I should say, uh, can prepare a defense. Um, you know, in some ways, you know, impeachment is really unusual, right? It happens very rarely, right. especially for a president of the United States. Uh, but this feels like old hat since we just had an impeachment trial uh, just, you know, about a year ago. And so in some ways, this isn't all that different. But in other ways, it's remarkably different. Um, he's no longer in office. President Trump isn't that popular compared to to where we were looking at early in 2020. Um, and there'll be no chief justice. You know, as we heard yesterday, uh, Pat Leahy, senator from Vermont, will preside over the trial of President Trump and not the chief justice. And just real quickly, the Constitution requires the chief justice to preside when the president is being tried. Uh, but of course, mm-hmm. President Trump is no longer president. Do- uh, Joe Biden is president. And so therefore, the chief justice is not really obligated to be there. So he won't be. So uh, it'll be different in a lot of ways. It'll be interesting to watch it unfold. That answers that question. I was wondering about how it was that Patrick Leahy would have the opportunity to preside. But as a former president, have we seen this happen before in the past? Do we have precedent of a former president undergoing an impeachment trial? No, no, we haven't seen anything like this before in terms of a president. Um, We haven't seen a president impeached twice, and we have not seen a former president go under a trial. Now, we have seen 
a former federal official be impeached and a trial take place. Uh, Secretary of War back in 1876, William Belknap was actually he actually resigned right before he was impeached. The House went ahead and impeached him anyway, and then the Senate decided they could indeed try him, even though he had actually resigned. And so there is a little bit of a precedent here, but nothing remotely like this with a with a president of the United States. And have you had a chance to read through the allegations, the charges by which they plan to impeach him? I'm hearing some things that maybe these were not as well thought through as they otherwise could have been. Or what are you noticing in that part of this? Well, it's only one article, and you know there wasn't really any kind of a of a hearing. Uh, there wasn't testimony. They didn't bring in a lot of expert witnesses like they did the last time. Um, but uh, you know, in some ways, that is understandable, right? I think everyone has a sense of why this is happening. It was January 6th and what happened as a result of January 6th. Um, but it is an interesting article of impeachment because it uses the word ins- insurrection. Hmm. And it kind of hinges the argument on that word insurrection. And it provides a lot of information about the president's speech on January 6th and his danger to the public and and other things like that. The problem there, I think, is insurrection is a pretty tall hill to climb, legally speaking. Uh, the president certainly was uh, explosive in his rhetoric. And given the timing, you could argue that maybe he incited that group of people who went into the Capitol. But that's really different, I would say, than, than an insurrection. We typically think of someone putting together troops and leading a movement or a battle against the United States government. It's it's a difficult charge to prove, I think, in some ways. Now, the other, the rest of it, when you read how they're defining their terms, uh, you know, the president, they're, they're saying the president did not protect and defend the Constitution. He did not faithfully execute his office. Uh, he coerced Georgia election officials. Those things make more sense, I think, but those don't necessarily add up to insurrection. I think that's really the difficulty of the article. And Mark, I'd be curious your read as to what you sense may be motivating this impeachment beyond just the idea of of wanting to have some sort of legal fairness or or legal responsibility on behalf of former President Trump. And this is not a political statement. I would suggest that that if the roles were reversed and it was an outgoing Democratic president and an incoming Republican administration, that when we see impeachment like this, it seems like... like a bit of maybe vindictiveness or power play, or is it just simply that they're concerned that he may restart the movement before now in 2024 and they don't want him to run again? What do you see going on besides the idea of, oh, we really want to hold him responsible? Well, whenever you see political actors do something, I think you have to kind of begin with the assumption they're doing it for their own interest. Yeah. Um, Now, again, I know that sounds cynical, Um, But I think you have to sort of start there. And so surely the Democrats have a political motive at work here. Um, They can damage the Republican Party. Uh, They can potentially split the party by forcing Donald Trump out of it, alienating his voters potentially for two years, four years, maybe forever for some of them. Uh, And that's certainly politically beneficial for the Democrats. But I think to be fair, you have to ask yourself then, okay, are there other motives in addition to their self-interest? that makes sense, you know, they're def- that are defensible motives. And I think from their perspective, the argument that President Trump engaged in highly unusual behavior that indeed was a danger, ultimately, to a co-equal branch of government, to Congress, um, I think it's, it is an argument that they can make with a straight face and say, you know, we're not just simply here for political purposes. We all saw what happened. We all saw the Capitol get ransacked. We all saw how close it could have come to bloodshed and maybe even the butchering of a branch of government. And so 
they have an argument they can make. Now, that's not going to be persuasive to Trump supporters, and many Republicans aren't going to buy that argument. But I think they can at least credibly claim with a straight face. There are a lot of motivations at work here. Seems like sort of the best of both worlds, right? There is a, a legal case to be made, but there also is political gain to be wielded yes. in the situation. No question about it. But that's, you know, that's just kind of the nature of things when it comes to politics. Um, I think we have to be really suspicious when you only see a personal motivation. And that's really your only thing that you can discern meaningfully. Uh, but I think here they can at least credibly say, you know, as a separate branch of government that's designed to defend itself against the executive, maybe we need to draw a hard line here and say this kind of behavior won't be tolerated and impeachment makes the most sense. That's different than saying you should vote to remove or convict or bar him from running from the future, but I can at least understand where they're coming from. That's the voice of Mark Smith from Cedarville University, regular contributor to Mornings with Carmen, talking about some of the political scene of the day. Mark, when we come back, we'll change the topic a bit towards uh, this word of the day that I'm learning that I still can't pronounce. So I'm going to give it a go after the break, but it has to do with uh, President Trump profiting off of being in the White House. So I'm going to ask you about that next year in just a minute. You know, Mark, I do like that big band music. I can see why you've sort of been drawn into this genre of music. It's it's pretty peppy for a little morning like this. Well, you know, I, I know you don't want to go to, into the weeds, but it's kind of a nice combination of really sophisticated things like classical music on the one hand and then jazz on the other. And it kind of fuses those things together. And I... I really like it. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think it's a lot of fun. It's very solid. Well, we're going to change the topic here to something that can be described as to whether or not Donald Trump illegally profited off of his presidency. The Supreme Court brought an end to some lawsuits related to that. And, Mark, this is uh, falls into the category of M- M- emul... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think emolument. Did I get that right? This feels like a spice I put on a curry dish. What am I talking about here, Mark? This is this is where you are the expert. I, I better just stay in the range of practical theologian. So emoluments. Yeah, mm. that's the word we're looking for. That is emoluments. the word of the day. Look that one up, word right? Emoluments, yeah. Um, so in, in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 9, there's a long list of things that the government may not do and that certain people may not do. And one of those things says that federal officials uh, may not receive emoluments, is how the Constitution puts it, from foreign governments or kings or foreign heads of state. And what that means is uh, members of Congress or the president or cabinet members, people like that, um, can't receive improper benefits from foreign governments that effectively function like bribes. In other words, it wouldn't be proper for a foreign government to give a president of the United States a gift that would be valued at a billion dollars or to hire the president as a consultant to the foreign government and make a million dollars a year. Um, And so the Constitution tries to have this this uh, this thing in place, this provision in place to prevent corruption. There is a real question during President Trump's presidency as to whether or not his foreign businesses were actually allowing him to profit off of foreign heads of state and foreign governments as they would solicit his businesses and rent rooms in his hotels and other things in a way that would maybe give the president profit and also give them access um, to the Trump administration. And so the attorney general of Maryland uh, and attorney general in Washington, D.C. filed lawsuits claiming that President Trump's actually business transactions were a violation of this clause. So 
with that being thrown out, there's uh, the topic of the post-presidency possibility to, to profit off of the presidency, and that, and that is something that clearly right. past presidents have done. What, yes. what do you see, how much harm has been brought, did, did, did sort of President Trump bring to his, quote, brand, I suppose, with the events of January 6th and beyond? Do we, is, has there been some conversation about how much that he stands to lose as a result of that? Yeah, I, I think uh, former presidents have made a significant amount of money on the lecture circuit, uh, by writing books and getting massive advances and things like that. Uh, President Trump, of course, we don't really know the clear picture of his financial condition, but uh, he has plenty of money, it seems like. And so I'm not sure he'll want to use the presidency quite like other presidents have. But the evidence right now suggests that he's having a hard time uh, with banks who decided to not extend him credit in the future, uh, with corporations that are saying they're going to maybe sever relationships with the Trump brand and and Trump hotels and things like that. Um, and we've also seen corporations refuse to hire Trump staffers. You know, prominent Trump staffers who are associated with the president are are being really, are seeing closed doors when it comes to employment opportunities. And so uh, I think that he has damaged himself and I think it mostly does stem from January 6th in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think he will pay a price for it. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how significant and how long that lasts. It'll be interesting to see exactly what you just said compared to maybe President Bill Clinton, who obviously had the, the scandal with Monica Lewinsky, but it didn't seem to necessarily harm his brand for whatever reason back in that time. If this is more of a lasting impact on that brand, especially as he doesn't seem to be leaving the political theater anytime soon. I saw yesterday that there was some some headlines about him setting up shop in Florida at this point, the office of the post-presidency. And, and, and that's going to relate to some of the internal struggles that seem to be going on in the Republican Party itself in terms of who are we? What are we about? What do we care about? There's some fractures in that. And, and in other governments in the world, there are almost always more than two parties in some of these Western governments, whether it's the UK, whether it's in Germany. They, right. You have to form these coalitions with some of the lesser parties. They, the lesser parties hardly ever are the ruling party, but they do get involved with, with some of the major parties. What do we see? Is there the possibility of sort of this fractured third party? Do you think he'll be popular enough with a different kind of platform to to shake up the Republican Party a bit? You know, it's a it's a great question, and it's hard to know exactly how this is going to unfold. But I think what makes it difficult for the Republicans moving forward is that President Trump did not have a really strong ideology. You know, he did not have a really strong set of beliefs. Now, he certainly had things that he tried to accomplish. Uh, but it wasn't what I would say an issue-driven presidency. And so when he's out of the picture, what does that leave for the Republican Party? He's still massively popular within a lot of parts of the party, but you don't see this agenda just kind of sitting there for other people to pursue after Trump. And so what does the party stand for? What does it mean? Is it built around Donald Trump? Is it built around the themes of Ronald Reagan, small government conservatism? It doesn't appear to be anymore. And so yeah, there's a real I think there's a real challenge for the Republicans moving forward, especially if Donald Trump ends up, uh, you know, receding into the background or gets barred from holding office in the future. I'm not sure what's going to emerge in the Republican Party. You know, this isn't terribly unusual for parties to kind of undergo a shuffling of the deck where uh, they kind of reconfigure themselves and they prioritize other things as opposed to what they've done in the past. Um, but right now, this really feels a little bit more than that for the Republicans. This is a bit of an identity crisis. And Mark, we have just about a minute left or so, but I have noticed uh, what Mitch McConnell, the senator who was the former right. majority leader, has been saying about the previous president. Do you think maybe some of his rhetoric about the previous president would have shifted had he remained in power in the Senate? Is he, is he maybe blaming President Trump for why the, it's a 50-50 split right now? 
Yeah, I think he is. You know, Mitch McConnell has one goal, and that's to keep the majority party together. And I think he's blaming the president for what happened in Georgia. Um, and so therefore, to him, maybe moving forward without Trump is better for McConnell and better for the Senate. Whether it's better for the party is really a bigger question, but that's not what's driving McConnell. Mike, well, great insight, as always. I very much appreciate it. Uh, give me a pronunciation of that E word one more time, E. Emol- emoluments. Emoluments. I uh, see a yes. word of the day for us, for our listeners. Appreciate just all the insight you bring into the dynamics of Washington, D.C. Have a great rest of the day, Mark. Hey, thanks. It's always a pleasure. You guys take care. We'll take a short break and have us a little bottom of the hour news coming up in just a moment. And when we come back for the second half of this hour as well, we'll be joined from a guest from overseas on the other side of the pond, the Reverend David Nixon from Edinburgh, who is a pastor right in the middle of the city there, is going to join me and talk about some of the trends of secularization and maybe the increasing loss of religious expression in our country. So stay with us. A lot more to come here on Mornings Without Carmen. You know, Paul, as a practical theologian who studies sort of through the lens of sociology or the study of human behavior so often, most clearly, you know, in terms of church history, religion, those sorts of things. But I do find it really interesting how patterns change given disruptions in our lives. And we've had this global disruption of COVID, of course. But one of the things that we see changing here, one of the headlines today, is that toy sales have jumped 16% to $25 billion in 2020. And it says sports toys, including skateboards, which I don't know about you, I could never, ever ride the skateboard further than maybe a third of the way down the driveway before falling off and skinning my knee. Yeah, about the same. Yeah, oh, that's was good at those. And fashion dolls and Lego sets. So growing up on the farm, Paul, what was your favorite toy? I mean, all this nostalgia is hitting as well okay, in the midst well, of all of this. So favorite toy growing up on the farm. Well, okay, first off, my dad or <clears throat> Santa would oftentimes get us... Uh, toy tractors not yeah. the real things the not toy the- ones that you <laughs> right. know trying to trying to invest in us the understanding and the beauty of farming but beyond that it was legos yeah yes, i yes. mean legos and, and legos has turned into quite the racket now oh, because right that's see, the problem it is i try to go in and buy some some speeder from a star wars episode mandalorian or something and it's a hundred dollars for 13 pieces for my kids i know and all i wanted is a box of just legos give me all the different shapes right i can create my own you know did you ever see the Lego movie? Oh, for sure. Yes, okay, I love that movie. There was a whole idea of being a master builder. Yes, one right. who could that's create. That's all it's we like, wanted to be. Yeah, where yeah, the Legos would shimmer in front of us. That's what we grew up us. on, oh, and all indeed. of a sudden, what we have are all these Lego sets. Oh, it's like, I love come it. on. Well, I would love oh, to hear sorry. from you this morning as well. You can text the studio at 877-933-2484. Favorite toy from your childhood would be something. We'll definitely read some of these favorite toys on air. If you want to text in again at 877-933-2484. The Reverend David Nixon from Edinburgh up next here on Mornings Without Carmen. Some years ago at the Residential Counseling Center for Troubled Teens called Heartlight, we helped a girl through some particularly tough issues. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. After a lot of hard work and the unconditional love of her parents, she was able to move on to a new life with both joy and celebration. And just recently, I tearfully watched her say her wedding vows. The bride wore a ring on both hands, one that we gave her to represent victory in her personal life and her new wedding band. At that special moment, she said to me, I wouldn't have my wedding ring without first having the ring you gave me. Moms and dads, don't give up. Don't lose hope. Keep believing that your sons and daughters can turn out to be all that God created them to be. 
Learn about Mark's upcoming events and check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. I like that music there. That's a little taste of home for me, Paul Perot. Yeah, having a person who's lived in Scotland for a number of years in his life. So you, that was that's some good Celtic wind instruments right there, right? There you go. Yes. Love it. Well, it's about 23 minutes before the top of the hour. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LaBerge today and the rest of this week. And that music means that we are joined from a friend of mine from across the pond, the Reverend David Nixon, who is the associate pastor at Carubbers Christian Center right in the heart of downtown Edinburgh. And it really is doing a great job of shining the light of God's kingdom in the, in the midst of that city. Good morning, David. Very good morning, Peter. Great to hear your voice again. I know that things have really shifted for y'all over on that side of the pond in terms of the COVID situation. And we've had a lot of news here on this side of the pond about this UK variant that seems to be both quite a bit more transmissible and potentially just a little bit more virulent in terms of its impact on people. So the city is pretty locked down from what I understand. Describe uh, what it's like around there. Yes, I was in Edinburgh city centre, the old town, uh, last week, and it's just deserted. It was wet and cold and slippy and just such a sad place, not filled with life and energy as it usually is. The new variant, um, as you've said, it, it seems to spread more easily between people, so that um, it, that's causing more problems. Um, and also, it seems to um, have more damaging effects on people. Um, my wife's a doctor in the health service here and uh, sees that last week sadly um a friend of someone in our congregation just in her 44 year old woman mother of four she died from covid the new variant so just yeah it's given us all cause um just to pause and to take it seriously again and even though this second lockdown is much harder um having to get on with it yeah. Well, and, and my understanding is, is that even your church at this point is completely virtual. The students that are part of your church as well from the university, the university recently has been shut down and gone completely virtual as well. That's right. We're back to screens for everything again. And David, the last time that I was there, you and I, before all of this COVID, we had a chance to sit down over a cup of coffee. And you said something very interesting in your observations of what was going on in the United States of America at that time. I think it was maybe late uh, 2018 that we are chatting, and you said uh, something to the effect of that the United States is becoming increasingly secularized and that Christians are, have already lost the cultural battle. They just don't know it. They're sort of clinging to politics as sort of these last vestiges of power. And you were saying that from the perspective of somebody who has lived in Europe and has seen the secularization trends. The United States are often seen as maybe one generation behind Europe in terms of the decrease of Christianity and its influence in the social spheres. And it certainly is playing itself out. So what did you see? What would you, from your side, how do you see things unfolding over here into the future based on what you've experienced there? We see part of my journey, I, I was born in Northern Ireland. My accent is a Northern Irish one. And Northern Ireland is a very sort of, it's almost like the Bible Belt of the United Kingdom um, for you guys, that analogy. And we moved whenever I was 12 to Scotland. Um, and I, I arrived in Scotland and experienced what it, firsthand what's been described as the fastest secularization process in all of Western Europe. Scotland has gone from being the land of the book to being a, a very, very secular and um, hardened against the gospel nation very, very quickly. And having then spent my formative years um, um, schooling and then university education, my adulthood in Scotland, I've just, I've just seen what a, a post-Christian nation and society looks like and feels like, and it, it's difficult, it's challenging. 
And I've seen that you in America, you're just, it, the, the gap between us is, 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 is growing smaller all the time. You're catching up. The forces of secularization are, um, are definitely having the upper hand. I think that one of the things that we've all got to realize in the Western world is that we're starting into a new anti-Christian phase in history. Um, we've got to remember that now we are in Babylon. We're not in Jerusalem any longer. And we've got to change. We're almost, we're, we're, we're for centuries we've enjoyed being um, in the places of power and influence and cultural formation. Now we're being pushed back out to the catacombs and to the caves. We're back almost in the first centuries of the church um, where we were a, a, a feared, despised, misunderstood minority on the margins. And we've got to be encouraged that the church was born in that and the gospel triumphed in that sort of environment. It's just going to be deeply uncomfortable to go back there. And we've got to adapt um, with faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus and his word and its power. I think that the idea of post-Christendom, David, is the idea that it's not post-Christianity and it's not the irrelevance of Christianity. It just simply means Christendom is is sort of this idea that Christianity is wielding some measure of social power in the world. And, and it is seemed to be losing out in terms of that dimension of it to the forces of secularization. There's yeah. some theological things going on, spiritual things, of course, but let's just start with the idea of secularization. This is a big word, and when, you, when we say forces of secularization, what are we talking about? Educational systems, ideologies, technology, what are we talking about that really is impacting this change? Well, the Latin words that from which we get the word secular just means this world, this age, this present age. And the, the secularization is about the loss of a sense of eternity, um, it's very much uh, thinking that this here and now world, the world that you can see, touch, experience here and now, that is the ultimate reality. There is no higher meaning or purpose beyond living now. Indeed, there's, there is actually no ultimate meaning. Um, there are only our own self-constructed penultimate meanings, ultimately pursuing our own happiness and flourishing. Those are the, the only ultimate things that we acknowledge as, as a society. Um, and do you see... Yeah, different do you see... Do you see technology and, and education really feeding into this? Is it, it in terms of even how we're raising our kids and, and what we see is what you described in the secularization? Is that part of what these forces, how they manifest themselves? Yes, certainly the ideas of the secular world are um, transmitted through education. So it's part of the air that, um, the, that, that the curriculum that, that students are breathing in. Um, they're just learning to think like a secular person um, without any sort of horizon of eternity and the transcendent. Technology exacerbates it because technology gives us this sense that we can make and recreate reality as we wish and please. That it's that Bacon, the sort of founder of the scientific revolution, sort of said it's about man's um, conquering nature um, and, and that sort of idea that we can control and manipulate reality in the world to fit our desires and needs. There is no transcendent higher meaning or purpose that we've got to conform to instead we decide for ourselves that technology gives us that greater sense that, that it gives us the illusion that we, we're little gods who can do that for ourselves hmm. i definitely want to talk about the theological and spiritual forces behind this david but thinking about our kids and our grandkids that are going to be growing up in this increasingly secularized environment in this post-christendom kinds of society and they are having voices of secularization coming through their education as well as through their cell phones all day long. As I know that you've got some children as well, younger children. How are you thinking about parenting your kids in the midst of the secularization to keep them anchored in the transcendent, to keep them anchored as people of the book, as you would describe, uh, following Jesus in this world? Do, do we almost need to get them off the grid a little bit somehow in the midst of this? 
I think part of it starts with us as parents as well and what we model and show to our kids that if we are the ones who are always on our phones, if we're the ones who are always consumed with the things everyone else is consumed with, if there's no obvious um, expression of faith and trust and belief and actually paying a cost of saying, you know, we're different as a family, we're Christians. We believe actually there's something more than this. We believe that what God says in his order and design is good, even though it's not popular. I think that we've got to be willing to show our kids that it's real for us and it's real for us as a family, as a household, so that they they have a they have examples, lived out examples of the things that we claim to believe. I think that's really crucial for them before we then start trying to manipulate and control, well, control their behavior or, or change what they're doing, um, which is difficult whenever their peers are all doing something different. They need lived examples. That's why Christian community and their peer groups are so important. Um, and that as Christians and churches, we are um, thinking these, thinking joined up together, um, wanting to model a different type of community in the midst of a world that has lost its moorings and bearings. And boy, that is challenging in an era of COVID like this when we can barely even meet together as believers to show that different way. But how important it is to to raise our kids in a place that, that the goal of life is not popularity and material success. There's an entirely different plane on which we are walking. So that's the voice of David Nixon. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to ask David about maybe what he sees as some of the spiritual forces that are going on behind some of these trends and how we as believers can combat them through prayer, through living together well, all of these different kinds of topics. So more to come with David Nixon next on Mornings Without Carmen. You know, Paul, when I lived overseas like that, I worked on my accent for a bit, but it sounded, I just, I, whenever somebody's speaking in, in any version, Scottish, Irish, English, British accent like this, it, it just sounds more credible, does it not? It, it does give an air of authority and it does. learnedness, yes. It, it yes. does, and clearly, David Nixon, you not only back up the accent, but you have the learnedness underneath it. I appreciate your perspective. I know you read widely and vastly. You're working on some projects. Tell us just a little bit before we get back into our conversation of what you're working on related to transphobia. Yeah, one of the things that we're doing in church this year is we're doing a little series of cultural projects, talks, resourcing, helping people to think through um, some of the big cultural um, objections to Christianity in our society today. Um, it's under the banner of a better story. Um, the old thinker Blaise Pascal once said that men are afraid of religion. They fear that it's true. And so what you've got to do to win their hearts is you've got to, first of all, help them to see that it's beautiful, that it's appealing, it's attractive, mm-hmm. and then show them that it's also true. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're going to engage um, in next Sunday is with the question of um, the transgender movement um, and the story that they tell of human flourishing. Um, but then explore just some of the ways in which that story isn't fully true and it doesn't really deliver on its promises and why what the Bible says in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, how it is still the better story that makes sense of who we are, what's wrong with us, but also the hope that we have um, of being made new and whole. Is this and this will be accessible even for people on, on uh, in the United States of America if they wanted to go to the Krebbers website, correct, and be able to to see some of what you're presenting on transphobia and how the Christian story sort of intersects with this. That's right. Uh, that's the joy of COVID that we're all online. Right, <laughs> indeed. So, where can people go if they do want to check this out next Sunday? You want to go to, to YouTube and just type in Krebbers C A R U B E R S. You'll get to our YouTube channel. You'll be able to watch the video there, and we'll do a live Q and A afterwards. You can even, if you watch it live, you can um, send in your questions via Slido. That's brilliant. And, and remember, if you uh, are catching that right now, and I'll give up that website again for this weekend. But uh, Scotland is six hours ahead in time zone, so you want to plan for that 
as well. But David, we've been talking a bit about the forces of secularization. I do find it really interesting, again, that Europe is sort of seen as, as a head of the United States. And so we can look towards you a little bit as we're maybe afraid of losing social, educational, governmental, political power, all of these different spheres in which Christendom has tended to reign in our country and how quickly you mentioned that Scotland moved from the the people of the book to this sort of anti-Christian land relatively quickly. And, and some of those similar things could happen here as well. And what, what are there spiritual forces driving this as well? Clearly it gets manifested in the educational, technological, political realms. But, but what do you see as a theologian as what's driving all of this? What's the point? I think part of what we're seeing is um, a backlash against Christianity and an overreach um, by Christendom in the past where there was this alliance between church and state where really Christians were given power in society and they, 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 they imposed Christian beliefs and values and ethics on people who were not Christians. They were demanding that they lived a certain way, which they do not have the power in themselves to live without the spirit. Um, and that led to a backlash. We see that going back to the French Revolution. Um, the I think it was one of the one of the um, leading guys of the French Revolution and the Killing Time said that the, we will not be free until the last king is strangled with the intestines of the last priest. So <laughs> wow. this alliance between church and state, a corrupt church that had lost the gospel, abandoned the word of God, that was about power and controlling people. There was just this massive backlash. And you in America are facing this choice of revolutions at the present time. Um, Oz Guinness has written about this. You have a choice between 1776, your great revolution, where you left us and you set off <laughs> on your own. Um, but that was that was very much, there was still a biblical worldview driving that vision of what it means to be human, how we live in God's world. But the other choice you have is 1789, the French Revolution, which was the anti-Christian revolution, uh, which was about wanting to to start, start from scratch with the individual self and... Um, um, create society in our own image rather than um, in the likeness of God's will and image. Um, and you've got to make that choice. Um, Mr. Trump was um, just a pause. Now in this new administration, there's some very big choices that have to be made by Americans about which direction will you go, 1776, the biblical vision, or 1789, the revolutionary, humanist, secular revolution. And, you know, assuming it goes by the way of 1789, as it seems to be doing in these present moments, you referenced earlier the idea that the early church really had a beautiful witness, even though it had to be hiding in the catacombs, even though it had to be running from both the religious officials and the secular officials of that day. And we do tend to see, David, right throughout history, that Christianity is it most shines most brightly in the midst of persecution, in the midst of when it doesn't have social power, and the church even grows during that time. Are there some words of encouragement from the perspective of history, both for the people on your side of the pond, as well as us bonded together as brothers and sisters? Yes, I think we've got to go back and learn from what did they do to show the, the beauty and the power of the gospel in those difficult early years of the church. And there are sort of four or five principles that history, historians of the church have pulled out. The first thing is that the early Christians, they outthought the pagan world. They the, the, the gospel is true. The, the Bible is true. It What it says actually describes reality and it fits reality in a way that nothing else does. Um, and so we've got, we, we need to be cultivating Christian minds and the Christian worldview and bringing that to bear in all the questions, and all the different issues that we face in our vocations, in our society, in our politics. We need to cultivate the Christian mind. I think the pagan world. We've got better truth and resources and ideas. Then the next thing is they, they outlived the pagan world. The Christian life and the life that God brings, the life of, in community, the life of um, um, sharing together, 
in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, there's something beautiful and attractive about that in a world where it's dog eat dog and selfishness reigns. There's a, be there's a beauty to the Christian life. The third thing is that the, the early Christians say, I loved the pagan world. We're the ones who invented hospitals. We're the ones mm. who invented the idea of charity. Um, and, and But we're in the middle of a global pandemic. It's interesting that the, the great Roman um, doctor Galen whenever the pandemic hit Rome in the fourth century, he runs out of town and runs off to his country estate to keep away from the sick people while the Christians stay behind in Roman care for the sick and dying because that's, that's, that's the heart of God for, that, for, for, for those people. And uh, that was powerful witness to, to, to the truth, the love that Christians showed, especially to those who hated them and disagreed with them. The fourth thing is, uh, so we've had out thinking, out living, out loving, fourth thing, out, out dying. This is one that actually is, is painful for us, but we have to understand that we've got to be willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus, that we have to recognize that what he has to say um, is not going to be welcome in a world that is in rebellion against the kingdom of God. We follow a crucified Savior, and we have to be prepared to follow in his footsteps, take up our crosses, and accept that we're not going to always be popular, not always going to be liked. As uh, Stephen McAlpine in his new book says, we've got to learn what it means to look like the bad guys. Mm. Uh, as, uh, as Russell Moore um, has put it in your country, we've got to learn what it looks like to be um, seen as the KKK um, by popular culture. It's going to be very painful and difficult for us. But if we're doing the other three things, we can show people that it's not true. But we have to do we do have to be prepared to suffer. We've got to also prepare our families for the possibility of suffering as a minority. And the final thing is we like prayed. The pagan world, the way that the, the, the power to overcome the, the powers and principalities and the, the, the forces and the institutions which are controlling things and shaping things, the great ideologies, it's, it's not going to be through our political organization. Uh, it's not going to be through our um, clever um, PR campaigns. It's going to be through the power of God's Holy Spirit, not by might nor by power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. That's the way that we go forward mm. in days of small things and hard times. David, incredibly helpful stuff. Again, give our listeners one more, uh, just go at the website if they want to catch uh, some of your work uh, around just combating the forces of secularism at Corrubbers. What's the name of the website this Sunday again? Um, so if you just type into YouTube, um, Corrubbers, C-A-R-R-U-B-B-E-R-S, you'll get us on YouTube or get us on Google. Now, thanks so much for the perspective this morning, David. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. We'll take a short break and wrap up the first hour and preview what's coming up on Hour 2 on Mornings with Carmen. Just so helpful to hear some perspective from believers globally, just to sort of get out of our country. We love our country, of course, and grateful to be here. But there is a bigger kingdom that is at play. There are people that are following Jesus around this world, both in the secularized West as well as South America and Africa and Asia. And those are our brothers and sisters. Those are the people with whom we walk. This is the Hebrews 11 people that we are tied both to the past and to the present and to the future, who keep following in faith into the unknown, whether we have social power or whether we do not. It doesn't change the fact that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Stay with us. In a couple of minutes, we'll be joined by Justin Gibney, and he and I are going to talk a bit about biblical peacemaking. And boy, does that seem relevant here next on Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.